When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, guys, this is David. The team and I are off working on some exciting new content and some sweet new knives and gear that I'll let you in on soon. So today, I'd like to share with you one of my favorite top 10 most listened to survival show podcasts from the past four years that I think you're going to find helpful and enlightening. Let me know what you think. She walked 20 yards in the woods from her car with a lightweight jacket and shorts on and got turned around and lost and then ended up spending literally the next three weeks surviving in the woods. If there's ever a reason to be prepared for anything, it is in the aftermath of a large-scale disaster. Welcome to the Survival Show, podcast number two with Craig, me, David, and producer Ben, where it's our job to take you step-by-step through the tactics, gear, skills, and mindset you need to survive almost any crisis, emergency, or disaster, and show you how to use the lessons you learned today to thrive in your life tomorrow. Craig and Ben, how are you guys doing today? What's going on? Hey, I'm ready to rock and roll, man. Let's get this show on the road. We got people in the wings. Yeah, it's exciting. This is going to be a great show. I'm excited for this one. I am stoked. Yeah, we're we're kind of we're kind of doing a little spoiler here, but we have a great guest for you guys. So, Craig, you want to tell us a little bit more about what's going on? Yeah, uh, I just want to make sure our listeners understand that our mission here on the Survival Show is to help you progressively increase your survival IQ for sure. So you leave out of here every show better prepared at the end than you were at the beginning. So coming up next, we're going to be talking about bugging out, when to do it, how to prepare for it, what gear to take, and what to leave behind, and a whole lot more. So what we'll do is we'll deconstruct a real-life survival story today. And before we're all done, we'll dip into the mailbag for a question or two from you guys, our listeners. But before we dig into all that, David, can you tell what and how is the best way for everybody to get the most out of this podcast? Yeah, sure. So to get the most out of this podcast, go and subscribe to The Survival Show over at patreon.com, The Survival Show, to access the show notes that include tips, tactics, skills, action steps, kit checklists, and any links to gear that we're going to discuss here today. I just want to let you guys know that from the show notes, you can build a complete survival and preparedness reference binder as we go through these shows, because we're doing this progressively through uh, most essential skills to know and uh, progressing from there. And so to unlock exclusive content, great rewards, and ways to get involved with the survival show, including early bird access to new gear and resources we're developing, like our new survival guide, go to patreon.com forward slash the survival show. All right, boys, let's get into this.
All right, so one thing, everybody, that we want to do on a regular basis is we want to bring in experts in wilderness, tactical, self-defense, and first responder disciplines. Our intent is we want to be able to learn from their hard-won victories as well as their defeats while we dig out the life-changing nuggets from their story that you can apply to your own life. So today, for our very first guest at the Survival Show podcast, we have Mr. Creek Stewart. Woohoo! Come on in, Creek. How are you doing, sir? Hey, how you fellas doing? Great to be here today. Thank you for being with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Super excited. So, Creek, we we know that you, and I hope our listeners know, that you've developed an immense body of outdoor skills, survival and disaster preparedness resources, um, many things along the lines of gear, books, TV shows, courses, and particularly you have some best-selling books on bugging out. So before we get into our main discussion on bugging out, I'd like to give everybody that's listening some context and hear a bit of your backstory. So, uh, and this is going to be good for me because I'd love to hear this backstory as well. First up, so can you tell us how you originally became interested in outdoors, disaster readiness, and anything that you have done to invest your life doing what you're doing now? Sure, absolutely. You know, it all came down to kind of a moment for me in college, but I grew up in scouting and um, I fell in love with the outdoors at a really young age. But ironically, I went to college as a pharmacy student of all things. It's hard to imagine Creek Creek Stewart as a pharmacist, I know. But, um, (laughs) you know, by, by the time I was about a sophomore in college, I was super unhappy. I was totally unfulfilled. I was not I was not kind of tracking along with this whole pharmacy thing. And I was at a real crossroads in my life trying to figure out what in the world I wanted to do, who I wanted to be, what I wanted to spend my time doing. And I was really struggling. And um, so the moment that kind of that kind of the highlight moment in in my life when I knew I wanted to do something related to wilderness survival was it's about 5.30 in the morning. I heard this crazy noise coming from outside my college window. It woke me up, and I went to the, the window, and there's a crow calling and screaming. And um, couldn't go back to sleep. Next morning, he came back, woke me up again. Next morning, he came back and woke me up again. The morning after that, I got up. I went over the window, and I told him, I said, I, if you come back again, I'm going to catch you, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> And I meant it. Okay. Sure. And so yeah. I spent the entire day carving a trap. I've never made a crow trap before then, of course, but I carved a trap out of the pine tree and I used dental floss for the noose and I baited the trap with bread from the cafeteria before I went to bed. And the next morning, it wasn't the sound of that crow that woke me up, but rather the sound of my landline phone skipping across the floor because that's where I tied the other end of the noose. Okay. So so I jumped out of I jumped out of bed. I grabbed a hold of this phone skipping across my floor, and sure enough, the line tightened. And on the other end of that dental floss line was a crow. Okay. So I reeled him in. Okay, I reeled him in. I got him to my window, and I wrangled him down. And you know, it's the moment of truth. And for some reason, the words of my old scout master rung in my ear because they said this to me a lot when I was a little scout. Creek, if you kill it. What? You got to eat it. You got to eat it. Eat it. Yeah. Well, I didn't feel like field dressing that crow that morning in my college room, so I let him go with a warning. But I tell you what, fellas, right then and there, I felt more alive in, yeah. in that moment than in my entire two years of college before that combined. Mm. And I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that from, from then on that I wanted to do something that made me feel like how I was feeling right there as much as humanly possible. And I decided that it must be wilderness survival. (laughs) Right. Sure. And so 
I started writing my first wilderness survival book right then, uh, which we'll talk about later. And I taught my first course that same year. I uh, switched my major to business and the rest is history, as they say. Nice. Oh, nice. wow. That, that is That's a really great story. So it, it, you, you mentioned that you started teaching others. And uh, my understanding is that you have Willow Haven Outdoor, where you do a lot of instruction. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what goes on there and how it goes about and anything you want to tell us about it? Yeah, well, that came a long, a, a long way down the road. You know, I've always said that if I was doing wilderness survival in the beginning uh, for money, I would have quit a long time ago. Right. <laughs> um, so and why I, is that? I, why, why do you feel that way? You know, because I struggled for, you know, 15 years to make my wilderness survival business into a, into a full-time business. I was always working you know, always starting other little businesses to support my wilderness survival habit and hobby and teaching. Mm-hmm. I was selling snow cones. I was selling t-shirts. I was doing anything and everything I could think of to stay alive while I was building this business. And, you know, Willow Haven came at a moment in my career when I was, you know, am I gonna, you know, I guess everybody kind of reaches a point when they say, you know, either I go big or I go home. And that kind of that kind of moment of no return. Well, I was kind of there with my business. You know, I'd been running my business as a traveling wilderness survival instructor for close to 15 years. And I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go big in this. I need a facility. So Willow Haven was a total God thing. I'd been praying for a long time. Like, I need my own property. I need my own building. And sure enough, pops up 21 acres in central Indiana with a big, huge lodge general motors built it um they left they left in the 80s and went to mexico and had been vacant since the 80s and i picked it up for a song and it was destroyed when i got it but it's you know one thing i had a lot of was sweat equity so yeah sure that's always a way to build stuff yeah and so i um so that became my headquarters um and that's where i run all of my businesses from today and that's really what changed the course of um, my personal career is when I got my own train facility and I could start hosting my own courses on my own land at my own facility. So Creek, you actually benefited from NAFTA. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, that's right. Oh, you know, with, if they hadn't have gone to Mexico, I probably, I probably would no longer be in business. That's right. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. So Creek, Creek, my last count is that I have, I personally have, 17 or 18 of your books, which when I, when I counted it all out, it's almost 20% of my survival and outdoor skills library. This is not just unusual. This is prolific. It's incredible, man. You're, you're a really busy dude. And like writing books is not the only thing you do. And every Apoco box, I get another little mini guide. That's, that is just the bossest thing I've ever seen. So how have you done this? And why have you done this and what drives you, man? Well, I mean, I definitely stay busy. I'm always writing. You know, I think as a content creator or as an instructor or teacher, you either find yourself either as a kind of an audio person, a podcast person, a video person, or a writer. And I've always tapped into writing. I've always 
felt more comfortable writing than anything else. Hmm. I just hope my first book never surfaces. Remember me that first book in I was telling you about in college. <laughs> I want to hear that story. I I saw this old mail order ad that, <laughs> that had somebody somebody who looked like a lot younger person than you in it. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Does that have anything to do with your first book? Well, you know that's how I I tried to sell my first book that I wrote, which should have been titled "How to Die in the Woods." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've wow. always said, I've always said, if that first book ever surfaces, I'm, I'm in, I'm in trouble. I'm definitely going to go out of business. Okay. For our listeners, if anybody has one of those books, let us know in the comments section over on Patreon. And I want to get that. I will, I will not republish that Creek, but I just want to see it. I will pay that person 100 times their purchase price so that I can personally burn it. <laughs> there you go. Oh, wow. So you want to tell us a little bit more about that story and, and about your first book? I thought the way to kind of become an overnight success in the wilderness survival industry was to write a book. And so that's what I did. And I tried to sell it to Boy Scouts. They took out ads in the back of Boy, Boy's Life magazine right next to Sea Monkeys and Bike Car. And, um, you know, <laughs> I learned, he knows what sea monkeys are. That's heck awesome. Yeah. You know, I figured if they're buying sea monkeys, maybe they'll buy a wilderness survival book by a scout. So, yeah. so I was, you know, I was trying to hawk that book anyway and everything, anyway and everywhere I could. And, you know, I figured out real quick that there was no overnight success story and, you know, it was a lot easier to write a book than it was to sell one. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's the battle there is is being able to market it to to people that want to be able to buy it. That's mm-hmm. I mean, writing it's difficult, but getting it out there is so difficult. Yeah, especially back in the day when there was no internet, you know. I mean Yeah, I can't imagine, man. Yeah, it was it was tough, you know. And that's really what started me on the path to teaching courses is I figured I got to get these people to me in order to sell them my book. So what's the best natural way to do that? I'll take ads out in local local newspapers and start teaching courses and hope people come. And if they do, maybe maybe I'll be able to convince them over the course of a couple hours to buy my $15 book. That's really how my my career started. It all started with a horrid, horrid book attempt. But I think that's a good lesson for everybody, though. I mean, you've you've obviously written a number of books and I'm sure David's going to ask more questions about, I'm sure. But it's good for everybody to know that you didn't hit it right off. (laughs) The first one was not so good. Yeah, no, it was self-published, photocopied at Kinko's, spiral bound, you know, but in my mind, I I was, you know, in my mind, I was an internationally published author. You know, I was ready. (laughs) I was ready. I was ready for I was ready for the Today Show. And you have been on the Today Show, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I was on the Today Show once, you know, but certainly not because of that book. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, I've always asked myself, how do I deliver the most possible value to the people who follow what I do and the people who are interested in survival? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I can do that with books. And that's really what has kept me writing books. I love producing content and kind of a personal and selfish side, I guess you could say. There's something about writing books that makes me feel like that's a part of my legacy, too. These books are going to outlive me, and they're going to be here when I'm gone, and there's something that my family can be proud of. And so I, I would be lying if I said that there's not a part of that that drives me to get up every morning and do some writing every morning. It's a combination of things, for sure. So that's, that's kind of how you do it. You get up every day, and you just discipline yourself to do some writing for something. I do. Yeah. You know, I read an interesting book by Stephen King not long ago about how he writes. 
And he dedicate, you know, he gets up and really treats it as a job. He, he goes into an office and he writes for eight hours a day. And he sits in there and he writes for eight hours a day. And so I treat writing like a part of my job. Um, I dedicate a certain amount of time each day, typically in between two and three hours every morning before most hmm. people even think about rolling over in bed. I treat it like a part of my job and I take it very seriously and I am very disciplined about doing so. Yeah, I think that's about the only way you can get a book written. In my or that's been my experience because I I've tried it one way, it didn't work, and then when I got my first one completed, that's exactly the schedule that I had to do. I mean, exactly what you just described is how I had to do it too to just make it happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a necessary part of 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 writing books. That's for sure. Well, with the guide, Craig, I think I'm going to try that next time because I. I basically stopped my life for four months <laughs> and just just wrote all that time. And it what you guys are saying makes a lot more sense. So Creek, what's the biggest surprise that you've experienced or maybe a high point, low point that you've discovered while writing books? You know, I think one of the kind of one of the highest points was when it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of highs, more highs than lows for sure. But I think when some of my books started getting picked up internationally. And I started hearing from international customers, from people like in China and Germany and Spain. And, you know, I just had a really cool email from a family in China who had purchased my Build the Perfect Bug Out book, which was translated in Chinese, and who had kind of evacuated from a large-scale natural disaster in their region and used their bug out bag to get them through it. And they're in China. It's stories like that that I just think are so cool. A family who I'll never meet and who I would have otherwise never been in touch with or had any dealings with whatsoever, they've picked up a copy of my book and I've somehow been able to impact their life. And I think that's pretty cool. And I love what you you guys said about legacy too and leaving your legacy in books. And let me ask you this, out of all your books, which one are you most proud of and you wish you could get in the hands of everyone and why? It's interesting because... The answer to that question would actually be a book that's that I'm working on right now. It's it wouldn't be I don't think if I'm being honest, I don't think it would be any of the ones I've once I finish this book that I'm working on right now. And I'll tell you what it is. It, it will be this one because it's very different from anything that I've done is I'm writing a book right now on how I built my survival business. Ah, It's interesting because the longer I'm in this business and the more I interact with people and students through courses and through all of my various dealings, the more people who come out of the woodworks and ask me, how in the world am I able to do what I love to do for a living? How did I do it? And I'm writing a tell-all book on exactly how I built a business around my passion of wilderness survival from scratch. And if somebody wants to be in the wilderness survival business, then this is basically a step-by-step manual for how to do it. But I, it could, I think that it could be beneficial to really anyone who is interested in trying to convert what they would love to do either into a part-time business, a side business, or maybe even a full-time career. And if I can just help one person kind of realize that amazing dream of doing what you love for a living, then I will consider that one of my life's greatest successes. So at the end of the day, I have two passions in life. One is survival and then one is entrepreneurship. And Mm -hmm. so they're kind of in the same vein, really. Self-reliance 
And so I'm going to be delving into that a little bit as we move forward. I would totally agree with that. I mean, that's, that's kind of long before I ever did this. Uh, I was, I spent 15, almost 20 years in corporate America in business development and marketing and stuff like that. So I, I would totally agree that in, in some strange in, intertwined way that there's some similarities. <laughs> there, there's mm-hmm. a lot with business and building a business and sticking with it and moving through obstacles and, and difficult situations and being creative. That I think really transfers over to survival situations. Sure. Absolutely. Both of them are different kind of survival. Hey, Craig, one thing uh, you've mentioned, David's mentioned that we haven't dug into much is your pocket box. Could you tell us more about how all that works for our listeners and uh, particularly what kind of goals and objectives you have for that part of your business? Well, a a pocket box is a subscription box. Um, It ships out every other month. And it's just a really fun box of survival-related gear and skills that I curate and ship out to a list of subscribers. It was my attempt to really build a community around people who love gear and value knowledge. Um, And so we spend a lot of time curating gear and working with customers and teaching skills within that Apocabox community. So it's just, uh, I'm always trying to find the people who, within the survival industry, who are kind of a part of my tribe, who I can relate to and who relate to me. And so I've got all kinds of different business ventures that could potentially appeal to a variety of customers with a variety of different interests, you know? Yeah, certainly. I can tell you for sure, almost every class that I have, somebody will show up with stuff from their own Paco box. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty cool. Because, you know, everybody loves to talk gear. So around the campfire, around the, you know, when everybody's gathering, where'd you get this? Where'd you get that? And, and, you know, a Paco box is always well represented. So you're doing a good job there, just so you know. Well, good. Thanks, man. I think one of the things that distinguishes a Paco box over some other subscription boxes is the skills challenges that you have in, in each one. I always look forward to the to the Ziploc packs and what what kind of parts and pieces and and wood gigs and knives and stuff that I'm gonna be challenged on any particular month to to kind of improve my skills. Yeah, you know, and that is a challenge for me to constantly be kind of developing <laughs> yeah. those kits and those skills. And, you know, it's uh, it's definitely it definitely keeps me hopping. That's for sure. So I suppose outside of a pocket box, most people will know you from your TV shows. Would that be an accurate assessment or am I wrong on that? Would you know it what? It's interesting. It's or show or, you know, it's it's hard to keep track of these days. I, you know, I've got so much going on that it's hard to keep track of who hears about me from where, but I'm always kind of surprised. I mean, definitely a lot of people uh, read, read books, but each time I expect to hear TV, it's always some other kind of random answer. And so I think that's what really keeps me throwing, throwing my line in all types of different areas. Right. Just diversifying out, which is smart. Very smart. This latest show I'd really like to know about because I have not as yet seen it and am wanting to dig into it a little bit more so I know what you're doing there. What Can you tell us more about it and, and what goes on there? Sure. Well, it's on the Weather Channel. It's called SOS How to Survive. We've done two seasons. We're gearing up for season three. And it's a little different in that we take 
real past real life survival stories that have happened to real people in real situations. And we interview those people about what happened and we find the teaching nuggets in that story. And then I teach skills related to their experience. And so if you love kind of those shows that that follow real life stories and there are learning moments from things that people have gone through. I mean, that's this is a show that's totally in that vein. Yes, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes we build so many different scenarios, mm-hmm. and, and particularly in the survival community, we build scenarios. What if, what if this? But I'd rather look at the research, the data that's there. And, and build some education around that, which it sounds like it, that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. And we have just, I mean, some of these stories you just can't make up. It's like they're better right. than fiction. You know, I mean, some of them are just unbelievable. You know, like one story we did last season in season two was about this, uh, this kind of elderly lady. She was right around 70. Her husband, her lifelong husband had passed away and she was going to a mountain in the Pacific Northwest to disperse of his ashes in his favorite spot. And she went there. She took the urn. She walked 20 yards in the woods from her car with a lightweight jacket and shorts on and got turned around and lost and and then ended up spending literally the next almost the next three weeks surviving in the woods simply from, I mean, the irony in that is not lost on anyone. Yeah, certainly. Just stories like that. And it's just one after the next. And they all present so many incredible teaching moments. So we try to, you know, I try to come up with skills and teach skills based upon what the person had in the environment that they found themselves in, you know. So it's been a real journey for me. And it's a and a real tr- challenge, too. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's uh, doing the research for different things that we do, obviously. You've got to find these real life stories. But I think one of the things I'd like to hone in on and focus on is that the things that happen to real people (laughs) are just fantastic. And there, and there's a lot of ways that we can overcome and learn from them so that other people do not have to, to figure out these things the hard way. If they'll just listen, that's the hard part is making sure people will listen, whether it's on a TV show or a book or a YouTube video or whatever it might be. I think making sure that everybody gets that is important. It sounds like the show is my kind of show. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, it that's that's the exact premise of the show is teaching based upon somebody else's horrific experience. Some of them are absolutely tragic, but there are still just incredible silver lining moments to be found there. I'm always just completely inspired by these incredible humans who against all odds survive. It's, they're so humbling and, and it's so inspiring. And I just love stories like that. You know, and not every story is a, has a happy ending. You were kind enough to recommend my first book. And in that book, each chapter starts off with a real life story. And, you know, I got a lot of grief for that in that I would share a story and a lot of those ended in tragedy. And I think that's, that's an incredibly great opportunity to learn a lesson. And uh, I just wish that more people would recognize that uh, learning from learning from other people's situations is a way that it, it's not just tragedy. If, if it was a tragedy, then we can learn from it. And it's not as much a tragedy as it was before because, you know, other people will live because of them. Right. Right. Absolutely. 
So you guys could not have done a more perfect transition into our next segment. And Creek, I don't know if you if you know this, but we actually do a segment in each, we try to do it in each uh, podcast, and we call it Break It Down. A major reoccurring theme in your work, Creek, it, especially in your books, is the idea of bugging out. So I want to start transitioning into this. And how we're going to do that is we're going to dissect a real life story. So let's break it down. Now, before we get into the rest of this podcast, I want to invite you to go check out the mothership for this podcast, ultimatesurvivaltips.com. While you're there, join our weekly survival emag for survival and preparedness tips, news, exclusive behind-the-scenes updates, subscriber-only discounts, and chances to win gear like the survival knife that blew up Kickstarter, our very own MSK-1 multi-scenario knife, which is now available in four models to fit any budget. So here's the deal. When you engage with us over at ultimatesurvivaltips.com, share this podcast, or buy any of our product innovations, you're partnering with us to accomplish our mission to help everyone everywhere gain the mindset, skills, tactics, and gear knowledge they need to survive any emergency, crisis, or disaster in a positive and productive way. Thank you all for your continued encouragement and support. Now let's get back into today's podcast. This was a student of ours in a class we had many years ago. This story is pretty hard to believe, but it is every bit of it is is just something we can learn from. Uh, we were in a class teaching, and there was a lady in class who had been involved and was nearby Chernobyl when it melted down in 1986. This was in Russia, obviously, and she had children of her own, three small children, and her husband worked somewhere away from where they were at the time that they were started having these issues. When the alarm sounded that something was occurring, she didn't know exactly what it was, but she immediately grabbed her children and left in a vehicle. She left and got out of there. Within a few short miles and only a few hours into the aftermath of the disaster, there was a complete bottleneck of traffic. And there was also a lot of violence that was occurring. She was scared for her life. She was scared for her children's lives. And there was an incredibly quick grab, as you can imagine, for supplies. The woman's husband worked at Chernobyl, uh, not exactly where it melted down, but she was afraid and just assumed that he was dead. And feeling for her safety, her and her children's lives, they very heroically, in my opinion, grabbed a log. She put her children on a log and she swam across a river to a small island in the middle of this river. She thought that it would be the best way that she could avoid the violence that was occurring and destroying people around her. They actually stayed there for several weeks until she felt like things had calmed down and then she left. She left thinking that she would need to start new somewhere, start from with nothing, basically nothing but her and her children. And she made her way to an assistance facility. And it was only then that she found that her husband was actually alive. And he found out as well that she was alive. And so shortly after this event, she and her husband immigrated to America and became U.S. citizens. And they now live in Chicago, Illinois. How about that? Wow. I, I, I want to buy the movie rights to that. No joke, man. This is an incredible story. And, and just like you mentioned earlier, Creek, which I think is so important, it's it's just real life. I mean, you can't make this kind of story up. It is it is what it is. Yeah, really. So, David, just answer me this. What comes to mind? Anything. Good, bad, indifferent. And then, Creek, I'll ask the same of you. Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind to me is the fact that we can be, analysis can cause paralysis. This lady knew something was wrong and she responded. She didn't go around and pack up a whole bunch of stuff. 
She grabbed her kids, the most important things that she could never replace, and she got out of there. That was the first thing that hit me. What about you, Creek? What do you what do you think about this story? What comes to mind real quick like? I can't help but just think about just nuclear plants in general. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- those they're so scary and just how many there are in the United States. If you've never looked at the map with the red dots, it is a scary-looking scary. map. You know, and how had just how scary that kind of what a major major disaster that really is. That's the first thing I think about. Yeah, it doesn't take long, to even if we consider just Chernobyl, to go back and look at what is there now and what's happening, because it's it's a barren wasteland, and it will be for the foreseeable future. And anybody that's even remotely close to those areas is going to be, well, I mean, you're going to have to leave. I mean, it is truly a bugging out situation, which I think it's worthwhile for us to to dig into the idea of bugging out and who better to have on the show, David, than, than Creek Stewart to discuss some bugging out. If it's okay and you have the time, Creek, can we go through some systematic look at bugging out and how to go about doing that? Sure, absolutely. I will, I will do my best to add some value here if I can. All right, guys, let's get back into it. Okay, Creek, for those that are new to the podcast or survival skills in general, we've been using the word bug out. But can we just step back a little bit and have you explain to our listeners, what does bug out mean? Yeah, sure. And it's real simple. In the event that a large scale um, natural or man-made disaster strikes your home or around where you live, and it forces you out of a matter of safety to leave your home and go somewhere else that's more safe. What we call that is bugging out. So in a general sense, in a very general sense, would you prefer the movement of bugging out or just staying in? And if you don't care, tell us why you feel that way. Yeah, well, I mean, if I had the choice, I would always choose to stay in or bug in, hunker down, whatever you whatever you want to call it. That's where, you know, anytime you go mobile, you've got less supplies, you're you're more exposed in general to nature and people and disasters and bugging in if you have that option is typically the best option. All you're in a shelter, you've got way more supplies. If I had the choice, bugging in is, I would take that option all day long. Certainly, certainly. This next question, it it may be too simplified, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you had to bug out only in one situation, what would it be? Only this happens and you must bug out. Is there a way to answer that question or is that too, too simple? No, I mean, I think if, I think if you want to break it down, it's when your life is in danger, when, when you, when your or the life of your family is in danger, um, then there is absolutely no question that you need to leave. Oh, I agree with that 100%. I think we need to be aware of these situations where either the life of ourselves or lives of those that we care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's important. We've got to be able to make the necessary steps to be able to take care of those we care about as well. So, Creek, do you think that everyone should be prepared to bug out? And if so, why? Absolutely. We've all heard it. It'll never happen to me. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what. If you track natural, just natural disasters, we're not even talking about the crazy world, the crazy man-made disasters that happen all the time. If you just track natural disasters over the course of the last 50 to 100 years, there is no question, it is statistically obvious that the disasters are larger, they're more frequent, 
they're more violent than ever before in at least our recorded history of natural disasters. You know, whether you want to just say it's biblical, whether you want to say it's global warming, whether you want to say we're putting pressure on the earth, whatever you want to say, you know, the earth is aging, however you want to justify it in your head is irrelevant, but there's no question that they're worse and more frequent and more violent. One thing I've learned after studying this for 20 years is that Mother Nature does not discriminate. She just strikes wherever she wants, whenever she wants. It doesn't matter who you are, what color you are, what religion you are, what zip code you live in, what you drive or what you do for a living. You know, exactly. it can happen to anyone at any given moment for in a variety of forms. And for all of those reasons, I think everyone should take at the bare minimum basic bug out precautions. That's really good. One thing that I thought of here, Craig, you've, ta you've talked about this previously, is when we ignore things around us that that can be caused by normalcy bias. Do you have anything to say there? Uh, normalcy bias is where all of us want to make the things that are occurring around us normal. Uh, for example, from our story about Chernobyl, this lady did not have normalcy bias in that situation. She recognized that there was an issue and started to get to work. And that's probably what saved the lives of herself and her children. It, it's real prominent in self-defense. Uh, we, we see a situation that alarms us. We, we normalize it. We make it normal. And we don't do anything to change our position or what it is that we're doing. And so normal, normalcy bias is, is actually very natural for most of us. We, if we recognize that we have normalcy bias, then we can then recognize that we are normalizing situations that do not need to be normalized and then make a change. So can you just speak to how that applies in preparing for like a bug out situation? Well, uh, for certain, uh, I'd like to get Creek's take on this as well, but uh, but to share what my thoughts are on it is is we talk about the critical rule of threes is just one simple way is if we understand that three anomalies are happening to us, hey, the weather's changed dramatically, uh, our tent is falling apart, and we're losing the sole on our boot on a, on a backpacking trip, then we probably need to make a pretty drastic change or we might suffer the consequences for it. In disaster readiness or a bugging out situation, if we recognize that, hey, the electricity's off, and, ooh, there's no vehicles moving anymore, or whatever might come up, then we need to recognize that that is happening and then recognize that we are biased uh, towards normalcy, meaning that we're going to make that situation normal when what we should be doing is recognizing that those three things have happened and we need to make decisions to, to move away, to get away, to pick up our gear and go, or whatever it is that we might be doing so that we're not stuck where we are. Because when we're not moving, if we're not doing something, then uh, that's where we're going to get in trouble pretty quick. Like Creek, do you have anything to kick in here on just really inspiring or pushing people forward to uh, be be better pre prepared for things that may or may not happen. You know, it's a tough it's a tough argument because I see it so many times. It's a tough it's hard to convince someone who thinks that, you know, it won't happen to me. It's hard to convince them, but I found having interviewed hundreds of people who have been through disasters that they all say one thing. I wish I would have prepared for it in mm -hmm. advance. What's the quote history is the best teacher, hindsight's twenty twenty. however you want to say it. Disasters, typically in somebody's life, it only comes once. And you only get kind of one shot to be prepared for it. Because once a disaster strikes and it, and it uproots tragedy in your life, and then you take the precautions afterwards to prepare for the next disaster, the chances are that it's actually never going to happen then, for sure. One common thread that ran through all these people is you, they wish that they had been more prepared. If we consider that, 
Uh, is there something gear-wise, uh, equipment that you think is is vital that we all have as far as disaster uh, deteriorating what it is that we're doing or where we are? I mean, what kind of things do you carry? What, what do you carry as an everyday carrier? Or what can you share with us on, on that kind of mindset? Well, you know, when it comes to this specific conversation about bugging out, you know, I guess there's three levels, really. There's your everyday carry, which is which you mentioned, which is the, any tools and gear that you're carrying on your person at any given moment. And then there's, I guess the next level would be kind of a car kit, kind of survival kit, a get home bag style concepts to a little bit more gear than what you would carry on your person, something a little bit more substantial, but something still that you still have with you. You got it maybe at work, you got it in your car. And then there's a bug out bag that you keep in your closet at home that you grab and go that has all of the survival gear tools and supplies you need to survive independently for three days. So I would say those three layers are the absolute most basic for any given person. Out of all those different levels, there's probably something I would guess from your perspective, because you've obviously interviewed a, a number of people, which is great. What do, you, what do you think most people overlook and probably don't consider that they, they should have in their bug out bag or their EDC or, or whichever? Which, what do you think is missing out there? Well, this is something that has come from interviewing people who have actually bugged out in a variety of disasters. And there's one common thread that comes that comes up. They typically are able to throw together some food, throw together some water, throw together some blankets if they don't have a pre-prepared kit like a bug out bag. But one thing that most people have run into having had to kind of survive on their own, waiting for power to come back. They're living on the road, living out of a tent, living out of a shelter, is they just have no way to charge their cell phone. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And in this yeah. day and age, without the cell phone, even though services are very spotty in the midst of most disasters, it's surprising how quickly they pop back up. The first responders that are coming there, they need that cell phone coverage too, because that's going to be a very big priority even for them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was interviewing, I was meeting with someone who uh, evacuated from Hurricane Harvey um, in Houston when that happened. And one of their family's biggest challenges was simply keeping their cell phone charged because they were living out of a makeshift shelter in a church at the time, which did not have electricity. They were running off of generator power a couple times a day. And so, my answer to that is some type of a battery backup that can recharge your phone um, independently anywhere from six to eight times. Uh, the one I use is a brand called Anchor, A-N-K-E-R. It's a, it's a little heavy. It's like a, you know, a big bulky battery backup, but you know, you can charge your phone no matter where you're at six, eight times if you had to. And that for, in some situations can be a game changer, especially if you're trying to arrange transportation, arrange lodging, call relatives, deal with banks or insurance or whoever you're trying to deal with. In their case, just trying to get in touch with FEMA, you know? Yeah, I think I think we might help out Anchor here a little bit because I know that's what I have as well, and I'm pretty sure that's what David carries too. <laughs> is that true, David? That is, that is true. Uh, Anchor, Anchor is great stuff, and you can get various different size batteries, but the really cool thing is they, they actually make some different solar power uh, units that just fold up and they they're easy to carry you can throw them in a backpack and 
it, it's a lot easier to keep your battery pack charged. That's the one thing that I think most people probably don't have in their kit that they need to. That's really interesting. That would not have been the, the one thing that I thought you would have said. All right, so on the other end of this spectrum then, uh, and we're not talking about your typical students, the ones that you've educated or the ones that have read your books because they, they will have this answer, but uh, is there any equipment out there that you see in the survival community as a whole that you feel like is a waste of energy or uh, packing, taking, or anything of that nature? Do you think, man, I wish they would pick something else besides that? What, what would that be? For most people, it's hunting and trapping tools. You know, with the idea that as you're kind of evacuating a large-scale disaster, that when you get hungry, you're going to start living off the land. I mean, as much as I want to go there in my head and would like to see that that fantasy of becoming John Rambo or Book of Eli or whatever, you know, hunting that cat <laughs> at the beginning of Book of Eli. <laughs> with a, yeah. The albino cat. Uh, yeah, yeah, the hairless albino cat. But just, it's fun to fantasize about, but the reality of the matter is you need to just have the food in your kit and stop thinking about packing snares and conibear and leg hold traps and all this hunting and trapping supplies. It's uh, certainly not for a bug out scenario. Okay. One other thing along the lines of disaster readiness Creek that I'm a big fan of, of making sure we get information out on is, is how do we help take care of our own personal security in a disaster event. Do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, disasters, in my experience, bring out the best in people and the worst in people. Unfortunately, there's a side of every large-scale natural or man-made disaster that is the ugly side. And that is when people just take advantage of other people who are in an absolute desperate and unfortunate situation. And so personal security is a big deal. Even if uh, personal security isn't your thing, if there's ever a reason to be prepared for anything, it is in the aftermath of a large-scale disaster. Whether or not you need to use the tools you have to protect yourself is irrelevant because, man, if a situation presents itself where you have to, there are a certain array of tools, you know? There's only, there's just, there's just only so many ways to say it, you know? So because of that, I'm a big fan of two things. I'm a big fan of a, a personal firearm, and I'm also a big fan of um, pepper spray or mace. In, in my case, I actually carry a, a grizzly mace. There are tools designed to protect you and your family, and without them, um, there are very little options otherwise. And I would like to add to that for anybody that's listening, if you if you have some sort of pepper spray or you have a weapon, whether it's a firearm or a knife or a, a blunt force trauma stick that you pick up off the ground, that's something that you need to train with. So for example, even, even not, and I'm not talking about firearms training, I think that's an obvious point, but even on something as simple as carrying mace, I always recommend people to take get two or three cans of it whenever they buy one and then just deploy it just so they know this is what the spray looks like when it's coming out this is how far it goes this is this is how much pressure it takes for me to push a button all those things are fine motor skills pushing that button and under stress you need to be able to have previous experience doing it so that your fine motor skills are going to be where they need to be that's for sure sure absolutely amen and make sure you spray it Downwind, not upwind. Absolutely. <laughs> so another question I think incredibly beneficial if, if everybody listening could hear your uh, perspective on is uh, it doesn't matter whether you're bugging out or staying home. What are three things, three action steps that our listeners can take away from this show to be able to be better prepared? Well, first of all is 
building a bug out bag of some kind. It doesn't have to be the perfect thing. You know, so many people get caught up in the idea that overwhelmed with the fact that I can't build the perfect one, so I'm not going to build one at all. And I would, my response to that is just put something together. You know, it has, it can be really simple. At the bare minimum, it should have five or six things. It should have a tent, should have a couple liters of water, plus some type of a water filter. I recommend it, the Sawyer, the Sawyer mini filter. Um, it should have some type of a metal container like a mug or a steel canteen and three days worth of like power bars or cliff bars for meals. Um, you should have a battery backup for your cell phone and a couple of AC DC chargers. And you should have a fire kit of some sort in order to build a start of fire. And so those are really simple items that almost anyone on any budget in any circumstance in any environment can put together. And if you've got those items in a bug out bag, you're 80%, 85% there when it comes to putting together those items. And you can cobble those together for very little on the budget side of things. So building a bug out bag is number one, and it's totally obtainable for the average person on a Saturday, you know? Yeah, easily. Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, beyond a bug out bag is making sure that you have some supplies in your house that can get you through a short-term power outage, a short-term off-grid scenario uh, that happens all the time in large-scale disasters. And so these would be one month. I, I like to say one month. FEMA says two week, two weeks. I'll double what FEMA says and say one month. Um, one month of water storage. Uh, that's one gallon per day per person for one month. Uh, you can easily store that in cleaned out two liter bottles. Just fill them up. And, you know, I have this, what's that popular quote, that really awesome quote that says, I'd rather sweat in times of peace than bleed in times of war. <laughs> the idea is do the work before the disaster strikes. And then one month of food. And this could simply be canned goods or freeze-dried foods. And to build up one month of food uh, for your family is not that much money. You could do that for just a couple of hundred dollars. You can build up canned goods and freeze-dried foods for one month. In fact, I have put together a system where you can store up one year's worth of food for two hundred and thirty dollars hmm, per person. Nice. Maybe we'll get into nice. that in another podcast sometime. But I've got a recommendation for everybody that's listening. I think you'll like this too, Creek. One of the things that I like to share with people is, as far as bugging in and staying at home, a good way of determining what you need is to go to your electric panel and turn your electric off. And go to your water valve and turn your water off for a week. Oh, and man. then start taking notes about what you need and what comes up that's stressful and start developing solutions. Because here's the beauty of it is, and, and I have a lot of people that go through this and, you know, they get two days into it or three days into it and the toilet's backed up and they don't have solutions for that. Well, they start coming up with solutions for that. And, it, and if it gets to be too much three days in, then turn it all back on. I mean, it's, it's training. And that way you get a real life scenario where you can stay at home. You have the comfortability of your home. It's not an actual disaster. And then you can start putting together, you know, a kit like exactly what Creek's described here. And uh, we can move forward from there. If I had to pick a fourth, it would be some type of alternate heat source, you know, because, you know, staying, staying staying cool in the summer, you know, that's one thing, but staying hot in the winter, especially if you live in certain parts of the country, that is an entirely different. That's a true survival scenario altogether. So an alternate heat source, 
Um, a wood-burning stove is a little overwhelming for some people to think about. A good alternative is uh, kerosene space heaters with at least one month worth of kerosene fuel. Uh, my grandparents heated their homes, both of them, with kerosene space heaters my whole life until they passed away. And so I know how functional they can be. All right. Yeah, that's – I'm telling you, Creek, that's a fantastic uh, number of action steps and way to go about getting people prepared. I really appreciate it. They're all so basic. You know, yeah. obviously I didn't invent it, you know, and sure. it's not rocket science, but they're so basic. It's just such basic information. So one thing that we like to do here to Creek if, is we like to dig into the mailbag and answer some questions from listeners. Before we get to that, I want to say this for everybody. Go over to patreon.com, the survival show. Again, that's patreon.com, the survival show to become part of the survival show community. That's our community here. Uh, you'll get some great rewards and gain direct access to submit your questions on the show, like the questions that we're getting ready to pull out of the mailbag right now shortly. That way you can be part of this community and, and we'll get your questions here and, and get everybody helped and with the knowledge that you need to take care of yourself. So guys, the question is from Joe W and he asks for a bug out. What should I pack for my kids under 12? Should they have a little bag or uh, should I carry it all? Bugging out seems hard. So what suggestions do you have for families with young kids or uh, older folks? Well, I mean, I think there's some value to them carrying something. It mm -hmm. makes them feel important. It makes them feel valuable. It gives them purpose. They can put a couple of personal items in there that make them feel comfortable, little toys, little games. I think that stuff is really important. They shouldn't be carrying the bulk of the load. The strongest family member should be carrying the bulk of the load, but they're totally capable of carrying some basic supplies for themselves, you know, um, a sleeping bag you know, something that's lightweight, mm -hmm. uh, a, a little bit of their own food and maybe their own water. If they could take that burden out of the main pack, because those are really bulky items that could go a long way in helping out kind of that, uh, the front man there that who's carrying most of the gear for sure. Greg, what do you have to say about that? Uh, I would mirror what Creek has said for sure. One thing that I know has worked for us when our kids were little and I, and I recommend this all the time is to get a camelback or some variation of it for kids to carry. Um, you can get any version of it, something that has a water bladder so that they have a straw. Uh, kids are always, always attracted to water. Um, having a straw that they carry around on their back is cool stuff. It keeps them occupied. It keeps them hydrated, which is incredibly valuable. And it also gives them a small pack that's more their size that they can carry some essential gear in. Uh, and one of the things that I think is essential is whatever that comfort item is. Some kids have a comfort item. It might be uh, a small stuffed animal. It might be a tablet. It might be this or that. Uh, but, and, and I differ with people on this uh, quite regularly, but I think that tablet, if you just immediately remove that from a child, then they're going to be incredibly stressed. And so um, some way to bridge the gap to the new existence, even if that existence is only three days worth uh, and everything's going to be okay after that, then uh, something to bridge the gap between home life and, and this new life of, of disaster is, is something I think is incredibly valuable. Yeah, definitely. That's what that anchor is for, man, to keep those little digital games going. Yeah, there you, know? you go. <laughs> But, um, you know, I, the only thing I would add is, you know, I would, you would, you should never underestimate how incredibly useful 
one of those jogging strollers is. Um, those things are incredible. And, and, and ironically, the, the brand I would recommend is actually called Bob, B-O-B. Uh, believe it really? or not. I mean, and, is it, and is that, it put no together joke, for that? No, it is not put together no. for that, but that is the brand. And I tell you what, man, th- those things wow. can be pushed over. I mean, they're designed for jogging, but they will they are absolutely an all-terrain stroller and incredibly comfortable to to push and to use, whether it's just to load up gear on or whether it's to toss a couple of kids on. Nice. I never would have thought that uh uh, that uh, it would have been named Bob. It's that it's the name, the brand gratuitous. is Bob. I know, <laughs> I go. know. I actually nice. joked about it when I first saw it. So what's his last question, David? What was the last part of that question? I can't even remember now. He had a lot of questions. <laughs> he did. So we'll, we'll give him a bonus and we'll, we'll do 30 second lightning round here. He says, uh, bugging out seems hard. So what suggestions do you have for families with young kids or Older folks like grandparents. They're going to be hardy. They're going to be tough, but they're not going to be able to go as fast and as quickly. Both sets, the young kids or the older folks. So be, have patience. Well, especially for kids, man, I just I just already said it, that Bob stroller, that Bob jogging stroller, that's going to be a game changer. That's great. And you can actually strap quite a bit of stuff on one of those. Oh, they yeah. Have the big, they have the bigger wheels, right? Yeah, they they've got big like twelve inch diameter wheels with shocks. I mean, it's incredible. They're they're a fantastic stroller for this purpose. That's awesome. Okay, Creek. Before you go, I have two more questions that our survival show subscribers can access over at Patreon. So here's number one. In your opinion, what are the top three most likely disaster events that could happen at any moment that would require somebody to bug out? So that's one. And the second one is, and this is the question that I think is on everyone's mind, Uh-oh. is your birth name really Creek? And if not, can you tell us the backstory? Oh, man. Now we're getting personal. Thanks, Creek, for being with us today. And please come back anytime. You're welcome, guys. Always a pleasure. So if you want to hear Creek's answers to these questions, go over to patreon.com forward slash the survival show and subscribe to unlock additional podcast content like this and a ton of other fantastic rewards. All right. So everybody coming up next time on the survival show podcast, we're going to be covering how to prepare and survive an extended disaster event at home, how to make a simple disaster plan, build a survival stockpile without breaking the bank, home defense, security, and a whole lot more. So subscribe to the podcast now to ensure that you don't miss out on this or any other episodes. And if you enjoy this podcast, please, seriously, please share with with your friends and go over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. Click the link in the video description to grab your copy of the show notes, which is going to include the tips, the tactics, skills, action steps, and kit checklist on everything that Creek and David and I have talked about today. And now go to patreon.com, The Survival Show, to unlock exclusive subscriber rewards, including additional podcasts, training videos, new resources, and gear that I and David are working on, and a lot more. That's patreon.com, The Survival Show. So, Creek, again, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys, for listening. We'll see you next time on The Survival Show.